0: You said, was next? I'd say Ford behind uh, Hyundai and Kia. And then uh, Rivian has some nice products, but from a business perspective, they really have a lot of work to do. And then beyond that, Stellantis and Honda and Mazda are really far behind. The German OEMs are making good products, but once again, those are luxury price point. But what they really needed to maintain their advantage is to announce this unboxed assembly process, the 48 volt low voltage architecture because that is like a monumental paradigm shift in how vehicles are built.
1: So we have Corey Steuben joining us today. Corey is an auto industry expert and is the president of Monroe & Associates. He, along with Sandy Monroe, who's the founder of the company and his team members are experts in reverse engineering and teardown benchmarking, having torn down over a hundred cars and are best able to compare the different automakers with each other. Today we'll be asking him which automakers are set up well with compelling electric vehicle lineups. We'll get his thoughts on strategic moves Tesla's doing, specifically the new way of building their cars through what they call the unbox process and his forecast on Tesla's auto gross margins. Welcome Corey, thank you again for joining me.
0: No problem, I love coming on your show.
1: All right, let's go, let's get brighter. Main topic today is what is Tesla's strategy? What is it that you like about it? What is it you don't like about it? And which other car companies are best su- are best performing and catching up? And I saw this tweet, so let's start with that. I saw this tweet that you did recently, and you said, "More than a dark horse, we are nearly finished with our Ionic Five teardown and report." I would argue closest to Tesla is Hyundai Global. You've got a photo of here of the teardown. This is the Ionic Five. This is the Ionic Five and Ionic Six. And you're saying from that, that's probably closest to Tesla. Tell us a, a little bit more.
0: Yeah, and it goes beyond their decisions for their electric vehicle architecture. The company as a whole makes great vehicles. Just yesterday, I talked to somebody in my run club who works at Stellantis, and I think his his wife works at GM but his cousin or daughter bought a Kia product. Hyundai and Kia share a lot of stuff. They're different companies Mm. and it was a sportage and he was blown away with the features and the quality of the interior components. But then if you look at the architectures of the vehicles, they're very Toyota-esque, meaning the way they build their body structures, the material choices in the cradles and the suspension components, it's a very efficient way to build vehicles when cost is of concern and you, you want a balance of cost and material choices. So I look at the offerings from from Hyundai and Kia and they're ahead of where Toyota would be because if Toyota electrified their vehicles and had an 800 volt architecture, I feel like they would be similar to what a Hyundai or a Kia offering is. So we also um, are recently performing our teardown and we've seen huge improvements from the early uh, Hyundai Kona and Kia Nero to the current generation Ioniq 5 and then the Ioniq 6 is even further improved um, with material choices in the thermal system lines, packaging decisions, routing decisions of some of the core components. So I would argue that they're closest because I see more Refinement and more um, efficiency from their EV designs. Uh, particularly the Ionic Six, I believe, is more efficient than a Model Three or a Model Y. The shape of it is really unique, and it, it it's kind of polarizing. The Ionic Six, but I really liked it. I drove it around, and people are like, "Whoa, what is that?" And I think it sticks out, but it's a functional shape. Like if I want it to look weird, I want it to be super aerodynamic. They even have front ags active grill shutters that are external they're not hidden behind which are kind of cool and also very functional so i love when an oem invests in the functional aspects yeah you can barely see them so see that front the red vehicle the ionic six there's this little tiny rectangles underneath the black the lower black slit bar in the fascia those uh areas open up to allow air in for you know, the cooling pack, um, the heat exchangers for the AC or the, or the, to cool the motors or batteries. So um, I kind of like it. The rear looks like a little Porsche esque. And um, mm. I think whether you want a more edgy, sharp design, you can go with the Ionic 5 or a smoother jelly bean design, you can go with the Ionic 6, but they're both really nice vehicles. And uh, so my opinion goes beyond just like what they look like or the performance metrics. People have to remember at Monroe, we're literally doing the teardowns. We're comparing mm-hmm. every nut, every bolt, every line, every uh, sourcing decision, every material choice. So uh, I'd like to think that our our uh, opinions are backed by a little bit more data than a journalist. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I show a little bit of, of this little clip here? This came from you. Oh,
0: yeah. Look at that. Oh, You're getting my yeah. footage from my Twitter.
1: <laughs> I, I, I like is, this um,
0: view. This view looks I do too. good.
1: No, the car looks great. Um, I'm shocked though. Am I wrong to think that this, uh, Ionic six is supposed to be cheaper than Ionic five. Am I wrong? Wow. Really? No I, way. I don't know. I just I looked it up and that's what it said. Um,
0: the number is bigger and it's cheaper.
1: The, the Onyx 6 provides greater range and slightly cheaper, while the Onyx 5 has more cargo space and will soon offer a high performance end variant. But I don't know. Like, wow. Okay.
0: That's more compelling to me then.
1: Yeah. What about, yeah, it's a much nicer car than the 6. Anyways, but you're saying that, you know, it's really well built. Is there anything else about the company and their, you know, are they going to be able to? succeed in their uh, strategic partnerships with their battery resourcing, minerals, and so forth?
0: Yeah. So they've been gaining market share in the United States, I think faster than most other OEMs. Um, Mm -hmm. Like Stellantis, Chrysler, Jeep, they've been waxing and waning between that like 10 and 13%. GM has been falling from 50% in the 1960s or 70s down to the high teens. Ford has been in the teens, but uh, Hyundai and Kia have been rising from essentially nothing to be on par with the likes of, I don't know, Honda, BMW, and Subaru. And I think they've even eclipsed that. And they make wildly popular vehicles from the Santa Fe to the Palisade, to the Telluride, to the Kia Carnival. And once they have their electrification plans uh, start to roll out in these other platforms, um, they've developed a, de- a devoted uh, customer base that really loves the vehicles and the biggest barrier to entry in the past was shaking the old, uh, the old notion that Kias and Hyundai's were not high quality vehicles, but frankly, they they are. They're they're high quality. And my wife even drives a Kia Carnival, the minivan, and we bought it because you just got way more for less money, and um, and it had a better warranty, a hundred thousand mile warranty and it was like $50,000, the equivalent uh, minivan from Toyota would have been in the 60s. And even um, the Chrysler Pacifica would have also been 55 or 60 grand. So I paid less money, got more features. Um, So it's really a value proposition and a quality proposition and a warranty proposition. Um, They really fit well in the US market and I think they'll survive perfectly fine. And there's a few steps ahead of many of the other competitors. And I feel like the level of refinement in their vehicles is further ahead of even some of the Ford products we initially saw when the Mach-E came out. Um, The initial Mach-E we saw had much room for improvement. And I think we're gonna start to see that improvement from Ford, but they're slightly behind the the revision cadence because um, Hyundai and Kia had their vehicles out many years before with the Kona and the Nero. Um, which are more akin to what we saw from the Mach-E and the Lightning, which are more amalgamations of supplied parts that are all put together and you get an EV you know, out of uh, just pure effort and brute force without the level of refinement that we've come to expect from players like Tesla and and even other startups that invest huge amounts of effort into refining the vehicles.
1: So... Other than Hyundai, which is the next, um, whether it's a legacy manufacturer or one of the pure play EVs or the Chinese, which one do you think is, uh, doing a really good job and going to be a competitor?
0: So I want to exclude the Chinese because they don't, they haven't really penetrated the U S market. And I, I think a lot of our viewers are probably Canada, United mm-hmm. States, and maybe Europe. Mm-hmm. So if you're in Europe, you'd want to check out Neo, BYD and XBANG. But if you're not in europe in the u.s um i'd say hyundai and kia are up there they have some really good options particularly the kia ev9 which is coming out three-row suv i think that's a depending on where it's priced in that's a better value proposition than an r1s and r1s is overkill for a grocery getter three-row suv because we've torn down an r1s the suspension geometry, the all-wheel drive, the power, the performance, the frame, the body, the the material choices are out of this world, but you're gonna pay for it. So if you have an R1S on order, that's a three-row SUV for city driving, taking your kids to daycare or soccer, overkill for that because it can do so much more. But American consumers have routinely purchased vehicles that are overkill for what they do. So many people yeah. drive trucks around and never tow anything, right. and never haul wood chips or rocks in the back of their bed. So I'm not saying that that won't happen, but the key EV9 will be a built on the similar high voltage components because we were out in Long Beach, California. I had a chance to interface with the team there. We got a quick overview of the vehicle. It's slightly lower to the ground than a. Uh, than the R1S which is a three row SUV but it's going to be a unibody it'll it kind of looks like a Telluride but more futuristic with a huge amount of room and space and three rows that'll be a great option for three row SUV so the um I know your question was who else but mm-hmm. I think there'll be a race for that mid to large size SUV segment uh once OEMs start launching vehicles because people haven't made the leap like um, uh, GM whiffed by making this massive 9,500 pound Hummer SUV and truck. And they you can't get them. Even if you ordered one, they're like $100,000. It's just, they missed the mark there. The Lyric is small. It's really like a car. I've ridden in it. We've seen them. It's not an SUV like a proper Jeep or a Ford Explorer or this key EV9 or an R1S. So I'm really looking for the next OEM that can launch their mid-sized three-row SUV um, because that is the most sought-after market in the United States. And I've talked with uh, a couple people. I have this hedge fund guy that I talked to who's awesome. And he's always like, why isn't Tesla making a three-row SUV that look like a, look like a Jeep or a Ford Explorer? Three rows, big battery. They could be charging a hundred thousand dollars for it because the Model X is not that. The Model mm-hmm. X is like a bloated car SUV. It's really not that that rugged SUV. So, a long-winded answer. You said who is next? I'd say Ford, mm-hmm. um, uh, behind uh, Hyundai and Kia, and then. Uh, Rivian has some nice products, but from a business perspective, they really have a lot of work to do to launch other vehicles to complement their high-priced halo vehicles, the R1T and the R1S, because the R2 needs to come out and it needs to be profitable and um, needs to be easier to build and lower cost. costs. So, um, and then beyond that, I think Stellantis and Honda and Mazda are really far behind. The German OEMs are making good products, but once again, those are luxury price points. So it's just uh, still to be determined.
1: Okay, wonderful, great answer. Thank you for that. I saw that you just finished a marathon a couple of days ago. Yeah. How are you feeling? I feel great.
0: I put in a, a, a nice thousand miles of training from January 1st up until the race, <laughs> 1,004 miles. So it made the 26.2 miles really easy. and. Just to conserve my energy, I didn't even warm up at all. I literally walked to the start line, didn't even do a jog or a stride. And um, I fueled properly. I drank water. I drank Gatorade. And ended up averaging a 629 pace for the whole marathon. Qualified for Boston. was 15 minutes under the cutoff time. So that was the goal. I wanted to qualify for Boston again. I ran it in 2013, the year of the bombing. And it kind of took a lot of the focus off of me running the race and put the focus on, oh my God, you survived. So I kind of want to do Boston again, so I achieved my goal.
1: Wonderful, okay, so you're, uh, I love the fact that um, you didn't even prepare, you prepared, but then at the day, you didn't get started, that's fantastic.
0: And then if anybody out there is a marathon runner, it is incredibly difficult to run a negative split, meaning your second half is faster than your first half. Oh gosh. Um, it took me, I only ran my first negative split half marathon in January when I beat Sean Mitchell down in Houston. I don't know if you remember with that little <laughs> wager. He owes me some donuts. And um, there's this race in Flint, which is 10 miles. I finally ran a negative splint crim after, after 10 years of trying. And I think with distance running, the discipline it takes to go out easy and train correctly is very difficult. And I ran a negative split by two minutes. So my first half was 126. My second half was 124, essentially almost on the dot. And uh, a two-minute negative split in a marathon is hard to do.
1: Wonderful. Well, the reason I ask you that is not only because you just did it two days ago, but also because it's probably a metaphor for how electric vehicles, the competition, what's happening, how Tesla is approaching it. The main topic I wanted to talk to you about today is uh, Tesla's strategy and what is good about it, what is not great about it. And uh, some people have said that they view Tesla as being five to seven years, a generation ahead of the other electric vehicles, just simply because they started fresh and they've been doing it for now 12 plus years. What is your estimate of how far ahead might Tesla be compared to let's say Hyundai.
0: So that lead was shrinking. It was slowly shrinking. Um, When the model three came out in 2000, late 17, early 18, that lead was solidly at five to seven years. Hmm. But as the years progressed and 2020 hit 21, 22, 23, the model three and the model Y underwent small revisions. Uh, you added a heat pump to the Model Mm -hmm. 3 and all Model Ys had a heat pump. That was an improvement. You added the gigacastings to the rear of the Model Y. Then you added gigacastings to the rear and the front of the Model Y. You had the 4680 pack. So each of those innovations was then adding a little bit more uh, bump forward in their advantage, but there were different types of advantage. They were manufacturing advantage. They were cost advantage, but they weren't these Technological advantage that we really saw when we saw the Super Bottle and the Octo Valve, and also their ability to lower costs by having the batteries, the 2170s or the 4680s, so elegantly integrated into the pack with large modules. So the Model 3s and the Model Ys had four large modules consisting of 4,416 cells. The 4680 pack finally came out, and that had even less cells, much larger, no fasteners another step change in advantage. so they've been they've been bumping ahead but what they really needed to maintain their advantage is to announce this unboxed assembly process, the 48 volt low voltage architecture, because that is like a monumental paradigm shift in how vehicles are built. It, it attacks systematic uh, and systematic problems and supplier based problems, that shock the entire world on how vehicles are sourced how they're developed how they're built how they're painted how the factories are laid out and that added as the lead shrunk from five to seven years to maybe two to three years as other players mm-hmm. launched vehicles that that had similar uh, range and similar technology and similar cost. that is going to bump them back up to that six to eight years like um Hmm. but we've yet to see that that come to fruition um so as the model three and model y and the updated s and x are delivered they're making updates still from hardware three to hardware four they're eliminating the ultrasonic sensors Um, some of the radar units are being eliminated they're continually updating the software adding more features so that's Something that a lot of other OEMs are emulating is the software updatability of the vehicle addressing the the user experience. And then the one thing that we may cover later is uh, the charging infrastructure and charging experience. We've seen Ford and Jim Farley and Elon Musk recently announced the partnership where Ford can now utilize that. There's a tremendous amount of upside for Ford, but there is some ancillary upside for tesla in the maybe the ability to analyze the data on charging habits and road trip habits mm. of their competitors as well as any ancillary income that'll be generated by having the chargers filled more often because how many times do you take a road trip where mm. it says 8 are available or 16 are available that number the sh- the smaller that number is the higher risk of a tesla owner showing up and having to wait a little bit if you have to wait a little bit, that means the monetary uh, clock is just ticking at those charge, at each of those charge stations. So um, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall in the the team that that runs the uh, charging uh, group at Tesla, because now the prospect of having their chargers being filled more often and generating more revenue. Uh, so that it's no longer uh, maybe a drag on the company, it can either break even or even start to generate a profit at some time in the future. So and I co- covered a lot of things there, but hopefully that answered your question.
1: Oh, it does. Now, let's go do a deep dive on the unboxing process. I'm glad that you m- talked about how you think that it is a six to eight, uh, potentially, if, if it does done right. So let's do a two and a half minute process of what is a current way that they build cars. I'll pause it and then have you react to that and then there's another two minutes afterwards to talk about what the unboxing process is. So, okay. let's watch this.
2: A traditional way of making a vehicle is this. You stamp it, you do a build a body in white, you paint it, and you do final assembly. And what's interesting is these shops are dictated by the, the, the organizational structures that exist, and they're dictated by the boundaries that exist in the factories that are laid out. If something goes wrong in final assembly, you block the whole line, and you end up with buffering in between. This is at the tail end of its manufacturing optimization. Henry Ford first invented this assembly line in 1922. It's been 100 years and it's really hard to make a change after 100 years. And when you watch it happen, it's actually really silly to a guy like me. You take all these stamp panels, you put them together, then you put them in a framing station, you build a body that looks something like a car, you put the doors on and then you paint them Once you get the color, you take the doors off, and then you start putting the interior inside the car. It comes in through the openings that already exist. I wish it went in like this big piece like this, but there's actually people coming in and out of the car. There's awkward movements. Then we lift the car up, we put stuff from underneath it, we put it down, then we put the seats in the car, and finally, we close it all out with glass and we bring those doors that went away for a trip, and we put them back in the car. Most of the time, we're doing this with a big giant car and moving it and doing really nothing to it at all. What's funny though in this kind of whole process is that just recently Toyota just called this an engineering work of art. True. (laughs) The Model Y. That that was humbling, but at Tesla, it's not good enough. If we're going to scale the way we want to do, we have to rethink manufacturing again. As part of the master plan, we have to make another step change in cost. We started this on Model Y when we made these huge giga-castings, and we deleted hundreds of parts. We simplified assembly with the Model Y structural battery, where we decided the floor should be a part of the car. The battery is the floor. We put the seats in the interior on the battery, and we bring it up through a big open hole, and we assemble it, and this allowed us to do things in parallel fully rethinking the process and reducing the final assembly line by about 10%. And we thought, maybe we could do this other places. Yeah, I mean, in in a way, the, the, the constraints become part of the solution rather than a problem. So when you think about what I'm trying to say, I really want to hammer this home. When you have a car that's about five meters long and you have people working around it like we did in Model 3, and we change that to this process where we take different parts of the car we can do more at the same time, like we did with the model Y structural battery pack.
1: Okay. I'm going to pause it there because he started talking about the unbox process. So that the first half there was him talking about the current model. We showed that, and you know, this inside out, give us some uh, just commentary. What, what do you think about the current model that they're doing?
0: Yeah. So he mentioned step change and so the current model which he talked about, I've seen, I've been in many plants all over the world. I've been to Vietnam, I've been to Canada, all over the United States. The biggest constraint is the size of the vehicle once you finish the body. So now you have this massive, he said, five meter long vehicle, and it's also you know, several meters wide. Now you have to have a plant that, that can accommodate the size of that body and vehicle moving on conveyors through the the not only the paint process, but the coating process, the drying process, the final assembly process. So your plant, the square footage of it grows because it has to accommodate this one monument, the vehicle moving throughout. And then removing the doors and adding the doors on, that's added process and whatnot. So the idea of unboxing that, meaning separating that, you fragment the vehicle into the the front module, the rear module, the sides. And then uh, when you send those away, he was about ready to get into the fact that you have more people able to work on individual parts. So if you have four or five people on each part at any given time, now you can have 20 people working on uh, the pieces and parts where typically you'd have four to five. So now you can have more getting done in less uh, space. Um, because you're now adding more people per unit area of the vehicle. And they highlight this a little bit more in the unbox process. And there's a lot of challenges that they need to solve that are challenges that you don't have when you have one body. So now you have all these interfaces with these modules, these unbox modules, Um, they're gonna have to really hone in how they align to each other so you get the rear and the front and the sides to all align. So that'll be really interesting for us to study when we eventually do get this type of vehicle <laughs> yeah. um, because it'll be uncharted territory. And that's the most exciting part about this is that most of the differences we see, like when a gigacasting replaces 100 parts, it's still a large piece of aluminum replacing 100 stamp parts. And how they interface that piece of aluminum with the steel is still relatively common to how they interface medium or medium-small aluminum shock towers into stamped steel bodies. So we we're, weren't seeing really any sort of wild technological advance when we saw the gigacastings castings being integrated into these stamped steel bodies or stamped steel aluminum mixed material bodies. But this will be wildly different. And that's what's kind of the most amazing part is the impact that it will have to the total cost of the vehicle. And they they highlight this is is they you know when he was just giving that little talk there, he mentioned that they need to push even further to lower the cost and ultimately pulling cost out of the manufacturing process allows the survivability of the company because EVs are very difficult to make money on and the affordability can be passed on to the consumer. Because once again, the ultimate goal of Tesla as an organization is to accelerate the transition to sustainable energy, not just to make profit. Because if they were just doing this just to make profit, I don't think you'd have the same passion behind the development of these type of breakthrough uh, methods and technologies.
1: Um, you know, like when when they when they came up with this, I think most people were shocked because uh, for, you know, just as layman men like me, Elon was talking about that the best way to build a car when you look at the toy model is they just do a single stamp. So in fact, we all thought that, you know, this, this perfected Ford uh, line, production line model was so efficient and, and they perfected it for hundreds of years. And then the next thing to do is to do the giga castings and then to do the large stamp at the top. But in fact, what they ended up doing was completely the opposite, it seemed to me, where they're going to do Lego pieces that they're going to connect together later at the end. Do you think that this is just completely revolutionary? Is this coming to the next stage that you would have expected?
0: Yeah, I I want to qualify what you just said there. So Mm -hmm. I think the limitations of the size of the gigacastings is... Not based on physics, it's kind of based on the size of the buildings and the machines. So, right now, Hydra makes that 9,000 ton giga press, and it can make a casting that's almost as big as the underbody of a really tiny car. Because, like the front of the Cybertruck castings, I've seen some aerial drone footage of them, they're big. But in order to make an 18,000-ton machine, it would have to be so much bigger that I think I don't think Tesla is willing to push the envelope to start making their own machines. So I think you have this this machine limitation Mm -hmm. where Tesla has pushed it beyond where any other OEM – because other OEMs use 5,000 and 6,000-ton machines to make large castings for maybe a corner of the car, like a shock tower or a lower structure in the Model S – or, or a shock tower and and torque box structure for a Model S or X. Uh, but now when you go cross car and you have two of those together and you have a whole cross car width, now you have these big machines, 6,000 to 9,000 tons. So I want to, I know that Elon said, why don't you just die cast the whole, the whole vehicle? Because in, in theory and in physics, you can, you could do it. You could figure it out. Um, but I don't think, he wants to pioneer a, a whole new machine that's astronomically big. Uh, so because of that, this solution, this unbox solution will allow large casting in the front, a large casting in the rear. And I'm guessing not castings on the side, but most likely uh, stamped steel assembled weldments. This has to be a low cost vehicle. They're most likely going to use steel uh, when appropriate to pass many of the rigid requirements for uh, roof crush, FMVSS 226, small overlap test, really the best material for A pillars and B pillars is ultra high strength steel, hot stamp steels. Uh, Because if you use aluminum or low grade steels, it needs to be so thick or so big, the cross sections become undesirable from a user perspective, because then it's hard to see past the A pillar. It's because it's so big, so you got to use steel because it's stronger per unit area, and uh, or carbon fiber or other exotic materials, stainless steel, um, to achieve these these types of, of of rigid, you know, requirements. So I believe that they'll still be using steel for the side portions, and it's just how they interface those together, how they run the wiring through, how they put the trim on, will there's, Will they have all the final trim on? Probably not. They'll probably still put all these sections together and then still go in the car and trim it out with headliner, with uh, A-pillar, B-pillar, C-pillar trim, uh, other, you know, closeout panels and whatnot. So I still think there will be some final assembly steps, but it's just interesting to see. So yeah, I remember I was in the crowd uh, for this presentation that you just showed. So I actually haven't watched it on TV. I was in the room, but it's interesting to see it again.
1: Let's watch the uh, final two minutes and see how they're gonna do the unbox process. Yep.
2: What you see here is us doing that on the front part of the vehicle or the rear part of the vehicle. That means we can get more people working on the car or robots working on it at the same time. That means we have better operator density, less time doing nothing. I call that space-time efficiency. It has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. We can have that conversation later. But we get 44% more operator density, which means more work, less time walking back to the station, 30% improvement in space-time efficiency. And because we're not building it in and out of the car with those slow movements of those robots I showed you from production hell, when we go to automate it, it's going to be a lot easier. In the end, that will probably look something like this, where we balance parallel and series manufacturing in a way where we only do things that are necessary, with a much shorter final line blocking a lot less of the entire rest of the factory, so we can optimize material flow using the best practices. And what that means, it's gonna look something like this, where we build all the sides of the cars independently, we only paint what we need to, and then we assemble the parts of the car once and only once. We put them where they need to go. The interior is attached from a bottom-up or a top-down strategy, so there's more access for those robots and people. We aren't moving heavy objects around and doing nothing to it, and it means we're doing more work on the car more of the time. And then, when we take all of these tested sub-assemblies and we put them together, we finally assemble the car only one time putting the sides on with all of their parts, to a front and rear that was already assembled, carrying the floor in with the seats, and finally boxing it out with the doors one time, just like Cybertruck. So in the end, you get the same car, but it's not gonna be a Model Y. Yeah, this is, not, yeah, this is a Model Y for illustration, not the next-gen vehicle. In the end, what does that mean? To increase the scale and adoption of electric vehicles on the orders of magnitude that we just showed you, we have to make constraints part of the solution. It leads us to greater than 40% reduction in footprint, which means we can build factories faster, with less capex and more output per per unit. Faster, less capex, more output per unit dollar. Zach's gonna go into more details on this later, but it also means through this innovation and some of what my other engineering colleagues are going to talk to you about in the future, we'll reduce costs as much as 50%. This is the two for one concept you hear me and Elon talking about on earnings calls.
1: Okay, so that's it. That's the unbox process. What was your thoughts when you saw that? Yeah, so
0: yeah, I've seen this already. And my, my main takeaway is the paint shop. So only painting what you need. and the size and shape of the components running through the paint shop are now narrower. So you have doors and hoods and lift gate, and then you have sides. So that's no longer a very tall, wide thing. It's more on a plane. So it actually changes the orientation of the robot. You only paint in one direction. You no longer need to paint both sides of everything, and you're not wasting paint, uh, having overspray on the giga castings. And, and the battery that's already installed into the structural battery pack versions of the model y the one we received was not painted it the lower portion of the of the battery pack was painted black it's aluminum And the top was steel and it was more of like a galvanized coated uh, cover you know because no one ever sees it it's covered by the carpet so they're already not painting the battery and they're not painting the floor. So in a normal vehicle, the floor is painted. It's not painted to a class A surface, but there's enough overspray where it essentially looks red or blue or white or whatever color. Um, but beyond saving the cost of that paint, they're not also doing the, uh, the base coat and the undercoat and the ceiling and whatnot. So the, there's there's the physical cost savings of the, of the actual hardware itself, and then the process savings. And now your throughput is higher And the next thing I really wanna focus on, he said more output per unit cost. So that's per unit dollar, per unit square foot. So now when you're talking about the overhead associated with the vehicle. So you have a vehicle coming out of a plant in Mexico. Now the plant can be smaller for every vehicle that comes out, or you can make way more vehicles in the same size plant. So Mm -hmm. now the overhead associated with lighting the plant with cleaning the plant, with the water in the bathrooms, everything is now divided over more, you divided by more vehicles. So then your overhead cost drops. And that's incredible because if you think of some of the most inefficient plants from a space perspective, they're these massive inefficient buildings with old infrastructure, whether that's utility utilization of water, air, electricity and they're expensive to heat, they're expensive to cool. Every time you buy a vehicle, you pay for that because it's built into the cost of the car. It's not something that's at the top of the mi- top of your mind because you, know, you may think it's the materials that go into the, the cost of the car is the biggest driving factor, which is most likely true. The manufacturing process is a much smaller portion, but the overhead associated with the plant is kind of peanut butter spread sometimes over the whole organization if you're General Motors or VW or Toyota, you may have 20 or 30 manufacturing plants all over the world, but you have to factor that into how your business operates. And Now, Tesla will be able to operate more efficiently from a global perspective if they're generating more vehicles per unit square foot. And that's the the biggest takeaway from that. I think it said 40% mm-hmm. uh, improvement.
1: Yeah, and 50% reduction in cost. Um, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. The next thing I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, he, he talked about the fact that this is um, not for the Model Ys and Model 3. This is going to be the new next-gen uh, platform, which is going to be Giga Mexico, Giga Nueva León. And then he also said robots, right? It's going to be both uh, humans and robots. And I don't know if he's referring to humanoid robots. But anyways, in the in the uh, investor day, they showed this slide and showed this in, in hidden uh, tarp here. 300 that you know these are the next vehicles that they're creating and um so this is going to be the next gen platform did you have any thoughts on how this might you know what what this is um this is going to be the compact car probably this is up the 25 000 one this could be look like a van but you know i'm just kind of like playing around with this idea that if they do it this way the unbox process where they're creating different parts and putting together it's possible that they're going to do it as a modular system, mm-hmm. and so if you want a two-person compact car, you create it like this and you plug them together. But if you want a four-person, you create you know different uh, you know different pieces and then you put it together. No, all of the you know six-person and then an eight-person van and all that. Yeah, um, what's yeah? Is that right? You think so?
0: Yep, that's a huge possibility. So depending on what side you pick, you know the the side sections, you can have it lengthened or shortened. And then the size of the battery can change. Um, it, it's a, a wild field of opportunity. So I believe they'll, they'll in order to truly realize the potential of this unboxed methodology, I think there'll be multiple platforms built off of this uh, method. And you'll see the, f- the front module and the rear module will be common, I'm guessing, I'm assuming, they'll be common on multiple vehicles, whether that's their small compact car, whether they have like a little van version um, uh, or a RAV4 or Honda CRV sized SUV off of the compact platform, I think uh, Tesla would be smart to target the most popular sized vehicles globally, which is like the Corolla and the RAV4, I think are two of the top selling vehicles in the world. Uh, The Model Y recently eclipsed them in the first quarter of this year. I believe we're gonna talk about that later. they should be targeting trucks in the United States, which they are with the Cybertruck. And then the compact car, which is a Corolla, and then the compact SUV, I think globally also does really well. I think N- Nissan Qashqai Rogue also was a high selling vehicle globally for a couple of years. But there's that's the segment that if I were Tesla, I would focus on. Vans are more niche. They're not as... Yeah, this is cool to have. Some people are like, yeah, I'd want that, but commercial vans I think would make sense if they use the platform to have a commercial van to compete with the Ford Transit lines. Um that would be interesting, but the profit margins aren't as high when you enter the commercial space. Um it just gets more difficult to compete because when you're negot- when you're selling to large organizations that are buying 1000 vans or 30,000 vans if you're a uh, if you're a UPS or a FedEx, um, they have more negotiating power and you get squeezed a lot harder. So, I think sticking to consumer, uh, the high end, the high volume consumer uh, vehicle segments is probably the best bet for Tesla.
1: So this unbox process, uh, if I carry it forward, what if they do partner with uh, traditional OEMs uh, beyond just supercharging networks? You know, what What do you think that they would partner with? Uh, people are saying that maybe it's the batteries. It could be the the whole skateboard. And then, you know, they can have the front and rear casting. But then because it's unboxed, they could let other OEMs, legacy come up with, and have their own design, their own, you know, their own insignia and badge on it and just put the top on. Yeah, uh, Is that possible or what do you think this might happen? This is
0: possible future? and it has happened in the past. So if you look at... The Numi plant where Tesla's Mm -hmm. are, that used to be Toyota Matrix and the um, Pontiac Vibe were essentially came out of the same plant. Uh, You used to be able to buy a Volkswagen uh, Rutan minivan came out of the same plant that made the Chrysler Town & Country. So it has been these collaborations where they're essentially rebadged, re-interiored versions of the same vehicle. And then VW is letting people use their uh, MEB platform. I think Ford's using it in Europe for the Explorer and um, even GM and the Ultium platform is collaborating with Honda to use essentially the skateboard to develop a vehicle off of. So the powertrain battery configuration whatnot. So this is not uncommon. But what benefit does it serve Tesla to allow other OEMs to reap the benefits of all their hard work? And I think I don't see Hmm. the value proposition in the near future, um, because they are gonna be focusing on ramping up and selling as many vehicles they can themselves. So why would they waste any of their precious Hmm. sourced resources, whether that's refined lithium whether that's materials for building batteries, I don't think they're seeking volume elsewhere. Typically that's a decision made by other OEMs when they can't achieve the volume necessary to justify some sort of plant or, or vehicle line. <coughs> Excuse me. So then they'll partner with another OEM to realize volume that they couldn't achieve themselves. So the question is, can Tesla achieve the volume needed to justify these plants and whatnot i think they can i think the demand will be there so the need to partner with a gm or bw or ford or any other oem to sell their platform i don't think the need will be there for that organization
1: okay that makes sense thank you for that answer so this is um this uh, (coughs) slide that they showed as their future plans teslas they've got your model. the, the Model S, Model X, 40 million. Then they expect the Model X, sorry, Model 3 and the Model Y to be 380. And we're already uh, going to talk about how Model Y is the best-selling vehicle. And this is their their kind of plan here. They, they're going to create new vehicles that's going to address massive amounts of market share here. Do you have any thoughts on their strategy, um, what you like about it, what you don't like about it?
0: Yeah so first these numbers are global electric fleet. This isn't the goals for Tesla to sell mm-hmm. on an annual basis. So I just want to address mm-hmm. that, you know, Tesla's not going to sell 300 million in that segment. Uh if they're lucky they hit the 20 million goal that they've set out for 2030 uh, annually. So that's the total addressable market, 300 million. So I think that's truck and suvs the 300 million and then the 700 million is the compact cars is that is that your take on that Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and sorry what was your question i kind of got lost there
1: do you like the strategy that they're doing here and do you what is it about their strategy you don't like um
0: what i don't like about the strategy hmm, let me see i i don't i don't like that they led with a large truck Uh, And not a large SUV, because I think Mm -hmm. the total addressable market for a three row SUV in the United States or a two row SUV, I think that would have been an easier task for them to handle. And I think the delays associated with the Cybertruck's unique design has Mm -hmm. soured some people because I've met many Rivian owners that say, oh, I have a Rivian, but I'm waiting for my Cybertruck. So they've let other OEMs slide in and take the initial EV buying experience away uh, from Tesla. And I think they could have, there'd be way more Teslas in people's garages if they would have taken the platform that drives the Model Y and done what Kia is doing and essentially create a larger three row SUV um, with slightly bigger battery, have the same motors similar castings, different shape, that thing would sell like hotcakes mm-hmm. if it were available now. I mean, because I'd get one for my wife. Maybe I'd drive one. The Model Y still is just a bit too small for me and my family. But as an interim holdover, a, a smaller three-row SUV from Tesla that's electric, maybe. So that's my only disagreement. But that's personal preference, I think, because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a, I have a larger family. Bigger than average. I think the average uh, family household in the U.S. has 1.8 children, and I have three. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, okay, good. So we, you know, we saw this uh, stat came out recently that the Model Y is now the best-selling vehicle in the first quarter of 2023, and the next four are all Toyotas. So, any thoughts on this achievement by Tesla, and what's your thinking that might, what might happen in let's say three years from now? Which of these might be replaced by either Tesla or other cars? I think you'll see, you
0: said three years from now, I think I'm going to go four years from now is my Mm -hmm. prediction is Mm -hmm. the low cost Tesla will finally hit its stride and pass even the model Y. And you may even see it cannibalize some of the model Y sales. So the model Y may peak in its sales in the next year or two at 1.2 to 1.3 million a year but then all model y customers will have their model y's and evs last historically long so you'll you'll essentially address the core market that want model y's and then tesla will have to break into other segments to gain more market share because those the model model y numbers may stabilize or even decline so you can look at historic numbers from Corolla Corollas uh, or RAV4s people who buy the RAV4s or Corollas their buying cycle maybe every 3 to 5 years maybe every 3 3 to 7 years where you buy one you drive the car for 2 or 3 years maybe you lease it maybe you own it and Toyota owners historically own their vehicles for a long time they're very reliable and I know many people who own them for 7 to 10 years and maintain them to 250,000 miles and then they enter the buying pool again so I think just like Model 3 ramped up real quickly and kind of stabilized and kind of went down, Model Y is still in a ramping phase. And I think there's still demand for the Model Y, especially with the games that Tesla's playing with the pricing, bringing the pricing down and different government incentives, whether that's Colorado, whether that's California, along with the federal subsidies. Um, so I believe that the, the model Y will stabilize and flatline and maybe decline over the course of the next three to five years. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we've seen peak model Y, and then you'll see other segments start to take off, particularly when you're talking about volume, the low, the lower cost EVs will have to get there by volume. The business case only makes sense if you're selling even more. Than 1.2 million a year because 267,000 for the first quarter is on pace for over a million a year just for the Model Y, which is really incredible.
1: Okay, wonderful. All right. So just the last topic here is the Ford and uh, Tesla partnership. So of course, this has been covered quite a bit here. So you can see that Ford and Tesla have partnered that uh, all Ford vehicles can now take advantage of the Tesla supercharger network. And then in a a couple of years from now, I think, uh, they're going to be able to, all new Fords will be built with the actual charger port, so that um, Tesla superchargers can connect to it. And what I wanted to focus on was that actually you guys predicted this. Uh, <laughs> so you guys had a chance to speak with Ford yeah. nine months ago and let me just play that video. Uh, did you want to set it up or?
0: Hey, I was going to say predicted or influenced because uh, we asked <laughs> yeah. the hard question here in public so um, but doug field intimated that they were thinking about everything so go ahead play it
3: love it love it that uh, that we've been getting um actually it's the first time i'm going to mention it but there's a um, there's a uh push um uh by by many of the people who already own evs not necessarily teslas but other evs and they're trying to get the standard moved from what we have now, the SAE standard, to the Tesla charging port. Have you guys ever entertained that or thought about it or what have you? Because I mean, the Tesla charging port is so much smaller I, and it doesn't have multiple whatever's, you just and it's it's ready to go. The, uh, the charging ports, based on what we know, uh, we're working with companies that make charger. Uh, the charger for the Tesla is a lot cheaper and it doesn't have fade like if you plug in over here, you get one number doom 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 this guy over here is basically at the end of the um, at the end of the road, and the charging goes down like a like a rock, which doesn't seem to happen too much with the tesla stuff have you Have you guys thought about that at all, or is that anything that's been um discussed? We think about everything um, um <clears throat> but one of the biggest priorities we're focusing on right now is um, is charging. Uh, and I think we take the responsibility for good charging experiences um, really heavily. It's it's um, I, I tell the team, it's not just that you gave a bad experience about Ford, you gave a bad experience about EVs, and that's a really big deal. So yeah. we have a very high gain on charging experience and we're working really hard to figure out all the things we can do in public charging to make it better and we'll consider everything, including how that. Considering, how about considering making your own chargers? Have you thought about that for chargers? Getting into that Absolutely. business. I mean, you can sell razors, but then you can also sell razor blades yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, getting a little piece of that action, um, yeah. I mean. So we, we, we do home chargers already. Yeah. And in the commercial space, we're starting to do heavier duty equipment.
1: Yeah. So your company, Monroe & Associates, gets to interview these industry behemoths. And uh, you guys in Monroe Live, you showed this video, which I just clipped from and showed it. But tell me who's around that table. I think I saw your legs. <laughs> you were yeah, right now,
0: <laughs> So next to Doug Field was Jim Farley, CEO <laughs> of Ford Motor Company, and Linda Zhang, the chief engineer of the F-150 Lightning. And then I was sitting all the way on the other side. So uh, Sandy, that was a long-winded way for Sandy to ask the question. He has a he has a way of using <laughs> tons of words and pauses, and uh, and he could have just said, "Hey, have you ever considered using the NACS?" That's how I would say it. We have completely different styles, but um, anyways, Doug Field's answer was, "We've thought about it," and he said, "Even that, essentially, transitioning to the NACS." So. It's, it's not, so they were contemplating it already, even though Sandy asked him the question. So we're not like taking credit for it or anything, yeah. but we were definitely pushing it and proponents of it because we saw the benefit. And I think it's a huge PR win for Ford. Cause now if you were considering a Mach-E or a Lightning, it's like, well, dang, I can still get one now and get this adapter and use the entire Tesla charging network walk like a te- tesla and act like a tesla and quack like a tesla uh, because it's going to interface with the vehicle so that you can plan your road trip and it'll consider these chargers uh, the same as it considers uh, electrify america and all the other ones so I think it's a huge pr win it's been overwhelmingly positive and i would hate to be at another oem in a high level management position because now you're sitting there like oh my god do we have to act what if we're a fast follower and we also do it, oh my gosh, it, it could be six months or a year of negotiation. And I think Ford is just that much further ahead to taking this huge constraint off the table that may have been inhibiting the transition to EVs by partnering with Ford on this uh, charging network decision.
1: Do you expect that Ford and Tesla will have additional partnership announcements? Because now that they've done this one, next thing could be something else. uh um you know no
0: i i i I wouldn't read too much into that i think this is a a very clear thing that's separate from the hardware aspect of the vehicle it's not like a partnership where they're going to be building cars together like the numi plant uh, with toyota and and gm this is a a very clear need and and i think it'd be interesting to understand more of the details i don't know if they're publicly be available Mm -hmm. like how much access will Ford have to the data that's collected by Tesla? Will it be like a supply you know supplier relationship where Tesla still controls all the data and Ford just has the privilege of using it? or will there be some some cooperation with the API and beyond the API, the data as well? So that that probably will never be publicly available, but I'd be interested to understand more of those details.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Corey. This was another fantastic episode. Uh, Appreciate you. So you guys know that this is Monroe and Associates. Uh, You can check them out at leandesign.com. Check out their website. They also have a very successful YouTube channel called Monroe Live. And you can follow Corey on Twitter, uh, Corey Steuben and at Teardown Titan. That's Sandy Monroe. So thank you guys very much. And thank you again, uh, Corey.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.